Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. You're recording me! <laughs> Welcome everybody to Bilge Pumps episode 107. Uh, this week, well, there is myself, Drake Hinnahel. Uh, there is Dr. Alexander Clark, who I was going to say is below me in picture, but that serves as no use to anybody because this is an audio podcast. You're uh, so you beside me in picture. Yeah, it's all different. And of course, we have our returning guest and logistics god, <laughs> Sal. Hello. So uh, oh. we, we are going to be talking mostly about supply chains, logistics, and also other things happening over there in the US of A that um, we felt we probably should have someone there from there to talk about. <laughs> and I would add, Sal has just had the positive experience of being a YouTuber now because he's been to a conference where surprisingly a large number of people knew who he was for a good reason, rather than being the person wandering around a conference. Oh, you're who asked the difficult questions. Yeah, I actually which got is that, an entirely is different experience. Yeah, no, it is. It is, and and when when everyone started talking about YouTube and they start talking about your channel, it's very weird. I'm still not used to this at mm. all. It's 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 a strange thing to be recognized for anything at all. But anyway, yeah, in academia, you do you do not get recognized until yeah. you are an emeritus professor. At you know, that's the that that's the only time you start to get really uh, have enough notoriety to get recognized. Now, you know, I used to go to those big uh, military naval conferences and you look at the rock stars and everything like that. And they, usually they don't even want to talk to you, which is always the weirdest thing because they, they, they're they they're old and grumpy and they don't want to be yeah. with you. Whereas whereas myself is like, I love talking to people. Let's go. It's just, you know, I think it's, it's something about the when you do YouTube for a while, you just get very open. You want to talk to people and you just love the idea of, of sharing your ideas. So anyway, I'm, I'm, still, I'm, I'm still basking in the idea that Drac called me a logistics god. So I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still uh, kind of savoring that. Well, that used to be why Eric Grove was considered so special because he was a god, but he would also would talk to everyone. Oh, and yeah. was he was shameless in that? I, I, I have my favorite story. I've said this on the past, of him, and what was experienced him was at a conference. The food was not the best academic food, and he saw that the PhD students were all getting hungry that have been presenting all day and said, really, we should all go for pizza, shouldn't we? Mm. And when one of the organists went, but, but we were going to give this as uh, select speakers a better meal later. And he turned around and said, yes, but that'd be terribly boring. I think we deserve pizza. So who wants to go with me? And surprising enough, all those people who were supposed to be the select, uh, select speakers getting a special dinner went with the PhD students and Eric to go and get pizza. God, pizza with Eric Grove. I'd, 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 try, I'd give something very serious for that for that <laughs> ability to be able to do it that. Was, I that'd be a fun conversation. It, it was, a, well, if you can imagine that Eric was at one end of the table and Andrew Lamb was at the other. Oh. And the conversation that was just flowing, and it was just the case. I just took over this pizza place in Greenwich. It was it was a wonderful experience. It was something I shall never forget. But I should also never forget out. the organizers' face when they realized that their speakers were go their speakers. They had two on their hands who were both going. Uh, we actually like PhD students, and we think they deserve to actually be fed more than this. Um, Finger food, and the food did get dramatically better the next couple of days of the conference. I have to admit, I'm not sure what happened, but the food dramatically improved. 
Mm. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. We should probably actually talk about why we're here. <laughs> we should. Um, do you want to introduce the topics? Well, should we start we got... off with should we start off with the big thorny one that's going to get a lot of people very angry first and talk about Bonhomme Richard and the uh the recent... fact that the US <sighs> Navy le- hasn't learnt from the Dreyfus affair? It only happened over a hundred years ago. So why would the US well, I mean, Navy you have learned to be from honest, it? you had the Turret 2 affair with Iowa. Yes. It's just that took long that took longer to clear up than this one so far. So for those of you unaware, they uh, they accused what was it? Not I don't think even it was it wasn't even an enlisted seaman, was it? It was uh, what was his position on Bonham Richard or E? Yeah, the, well, his, his kind of rank. He, he wasn't. Oh, he, he was an E one. He was a seaman recruit. He had been a seaman. He'd been an E three, but got busted down to E one. Right. So he he was literally the lowest rank. I mean, t- technically, when you come out of out of boot camp, you get promoted <laughs> up. I mean, so he was he he was the lowest you can get an E one. Basically, the equivalent of a sea cadet. And they decided hey. he does. He presumably I, was it something like something along the lines of he set fire to an entire LHD because because they thought he was just he was angry about being demoted or something along those lines. He he put in for for SEAL school, so he he mm-hmm. he got in and he he went to the SEAL school, the Bud School as it's called, mm. and he washed out of Bud School, which is not a, a, unusual if you've seen every SEAL That's, movie ever made. About ninety five percent of candidates right. wash out, don't they? Right. So he washed out and he was actually in the process of reapplying because you can reapply twice to, to to get back into the program. So he mm. and this other guy on board the ship had been working out, practicing, getting back in. But again, they charged it. Well, they, they alleged that his disgruntledness, you know, of failing out along with a failed uh, uh, girlfriend had made him so vexed with the Navy that obviously his recourse here was to sh- set the ship on fire. <laughs> And there was an investigation that was done by uh, the JAG Corps. <coughs> Excuse me. The JAG Corps and the initial investigation did not find enough evidence in the Article 32 hearing to go ahead. They said, listen, there's not enough evidence. I mean, we, the only evidence they had is somebody said they saw him leaving from the lower vehicle deck where the fire started. That was it. That was the, that was the amount of evidence he had. And in a search of his locker, they found the lighter. That was basically it. <laughs> And oh, so they, shock. I know. Uh, you find a lighter in a sailor's locker. Well, to be honest, oh, I'm, thi- my. Uh, I'm thinking more along the lines of man seen exiting from area where there is massive fire. And, mm. and then, well, and, and even then, the, the eyewitness to it couldn't be 100% sure. I think he said, like, I'm 90% sure it was him, you know. Mm. And, and, and so the, the court basically said, okay, there's not enough to convene a court martial on this. We're going to go with an undetermined cause for the fire. But that didn't work for the convening authority, which decided to go ahead with a court martial uh, over the over the the uh, uh, advice decision. of their own lawyers. Yes. And they said, you know, we're going to prosecute him anyway. And it was a really interesting case. I mean, because, number one, he, he refused a jury trial. So he just wanted the judge to hear the case. And so the judge was the one who was going to rule, which you could do in a military court martial. You could you could dispense with the uh, jury. And so the, it was just the judge hearing it. And it was about two, three weeks where they aired all this stuff and, and, and it all came out. And at no point did the government have any solid evidence that, that they couldn't even prove what started the fire. I mean, this is the other problem too, is so, a fire that burned for five days. You're going to have a very hard time trying to find so, where the point of origin is and what started that fire because so it's going to be can destroyed. We put, can we put this into context? The Admiral who actually managed to start organizing things and actually managed to get some firefighting going has been told off because it wasn't technically his command. 
Admiral the Brown. sailor who they they prosecuted a guy who they had no evidence of to try and make it look like they had a scapegoat. Again, Dreyfus affair. Please learn from the French Navy's mistake, the uh, French Navy and French Army's mistakes, because uh, Dreyfus was, of course, French Army, but the Navy got in the act of backing him up, and them up, and sort of trying to tell them Dreyfus was responsible for everything. This is okay. Can I just ask them? Does the U.S. Navy have a PR team or anyone who understands public relations, or do they just? I don't know, flip a coin and go, that'll do. I, I don't know what they're thinking in this case at all. I mean, because then, I mean, you, I mean, again, we go back, just, just, you know, you, you paste this back from the last time we talked about this, which got me all worked up because, because again, th this fire can get me worked up because it's just, it, it's, I would say it's a comedy of errors, but there's nothing funny about it. It's have they managed errors. to admit that they need to have fireboats yet? Oh, just, it can't be clear. There was, a, there was an editorial in, in proceedings not too long ago about this that, again, got me all fired up again because they go back to the one trope. Every time you ever bring up a fireboat with the Navy, they come up with this one trope, which is, which is you know, we used fireboats on the Normandy fire in February of 1942, and that resulted in the ship capsizing. But number one, the Navy... That was 80-odd years ago. And the Navy Admiral in charge was told, stop spraying water on the top of the boat. You're going to sink it by the designer of the boat who was there and said, stop doing this. This is the boat. You're fighting the fire the wrong way. You, you, you're doing this wrong. And and it, to me, it just confirms how they don't know how to use a fireboat. And this just, again, they don't understand what the purpose of a fireboat is beyond the fact that it doesn't just spray water. It brings firefighting equipment, brings trained men, it brings crews. And more importantly, you could put the hose inside the ship and actually fight the fire internally, you don't have to spray massive amounts of water on it. But they brought came out with these punishments against these 34 people, everything from the captain of the vessel to the admiral in Who, charge. If I remember correctly, the captain was actually aboard at the time. Was not aboard. Was not aboard. Him, the, the executive officer. This is the, the captain that got the famous tweet there or, or text from, from the command duty officer telling him his, his 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 ship is on fire, you know, you know, emoji ship, emoji fire, mm. emoji poop, you know, mm. and, and and basically telling him that that, that that the ship is on fire. And every time I hear about this text message, it, I I learn about it again because my brain blanks it out because mm -hmm. I cannot imagine. A, I, I I'm sorry, I'm just thinking, Drac. The Royal Navy officers and even the US Navy officers you met, any Navy officers you met, if they were captain of the ship and they received such a text message, their reaction? There would be another thing, another satellite orbiting the Earth briefly before coming down with the force of an asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have heard so much from people after I did this this talk with you guys, and I did my YouTube. I did, I did a couple of videos on YouTube on this. I, I've heard from so many people, and and one of the things, one of the strangest ones I got was this comment. It's like, well, you know, it's it's common practice for the command duty officer to text the captain on the status of the vessel. I said, yeah, but it's not common for the vessel to be on fire, you know. No, there's one thing like, hey, you know, good morning, sir. Everything's everything's well, you know. That's that's a text. That's fine. Yeah. Hey, good morning, sir. We did morning colors. Hey, hey, the crew had breakfast. That's that's a text. Ship on fire. I think that's a phone call. I just think that to me, that's. I, that I mean, to, it's to, a phone call. To be honest, that's a phone but, call definitely. But also, to be honest, considering the sheer number of emojis that you have in a typical phone's um, like menu. 
it would have actually been faster to just type ships on fire, yo, and send that. <laughs> yes. The, the amount of time you'd actually have to take to find each individual emoji. <laughs> have we checked out the duty officer? Because that text could take a while to compile. Did they actually I, have I, that text loaded before the fire started? Because I, 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 really I really want to see the text. I, I, to this day, this is the one thing I want to get out of that JAG investigation is what mm. exactly this text said and, and what it looked like. But to come back to this, yeah. what gets me is is 34 people and then they, they they lay out punishment. And even the captain of the vessel, I mean, all he got was a letter of reprimand and lost, you know, several months pay. That's it. I, I mean, you lost a capital ship at the dock in San Diego. The Navy will relieve everybody for anything. I, I mean, if there's a sexual harassment on board, you're relieved. You're relieved and someone comes on board. If you run into an uncharted sea mountain in the middle of the Pacific on your submarine, which isn't on the chart. You have no idea it exists, yet you run into it, you're relieved. You burn a ship to the waterline in San Diego for five days. And you, not only do you remain in command, but you're and in I command also... until you decommission it and you tow it away, <coughs> which is, which to me is, it, is just also... crazy. Is he by any chance connected to senators? I mean, is he married to one? Is he the child of one? I, I talked he... to... I talked you know, to somebody in the Navy who told me that he was the darling of the ad. They loved him. He was just one of these guys that everybody liked. Everybody, he just, he just, he knew how to talk. He knew how to be with everybody. And, you know, he was on the fast track. He was all set. You know, he was doing his deep draft command. He was an aviator, probably going to head to an aircraft carrier next. Everything was really locked up for this guy heading forward. But, but like you said, I, I mean, the, the Secretary of the Navy issued a letter of censure to the Vice Admiral in command of, of service forces for not taking coordination of the fire. It's not his job to take coordination. You don't need an admiral to fight a shipboard fire. Although oh. <coughs> the Navy has come back in since then and said, listen, the way we're going to fight shipboard fires is we're going to put an admiral in charge. And, and so, you know, because that'll solve everything. I hope they have a lot of admirals going I mean, around they, because they, they're going to be needing them to be on a lot of planes to take charge of firefighting. I mean, to be honest, well, yeah. I mean, can you imagine that in a, in a shooting war? It's just like, you know, 150, on fire, miles, 150 miles out from the from the carrier battle group, a, a picket destroyer has been hit by a silkworm or something. And like, well, the book says we need to bring the admiral out from the carrier to help fight the fire. <laughs> I mean, it, it just stifles, you know, command. It, it just, it, you know, this is, this is to me again is, is, and, and I, I said this recently. And again, I got a lot of flack for it. Is that I don't care how the fire started. It doesn't matter if it was arson no. or if it was a lithium ion battery or somebody threw us, you know, something in, into a bin and it, it caught fire. It doesn't matter if someone had a spontaneous fart combustion. <laughs> <laughs> It just doesn't. It, it doesn't. What it's matters is how you fight the fire. Right. And that was, yeah. to me, the issue. It's the response. It's those 20 minutes. It's it's what did you do for 20 minutes when you found out there was a fire? And, and I, when I will... you look at what they did is they did nothing. I mean, I can't say anything more than, than not only that they did nothing, but what they should have done was a disaster in itself. Again, you know, I go back to this idea that they didn't know they can don their firefighting gear with the uniforms they had on. I, you know, the last 14 fire drills, they weren't able to put water on the fire within time. I, I mean, this was a ship that was, I understand it came out of a shipyard, but it was, it was commissioned. I mean, I mean, it was out of the shipyard. It had been turned back over to the Navy. It was, you know, in a poor readiness state, but that's on the ship for being in the poor readiness state. 
and they have to address all those issues that created the poor readiness state. If, if 87.5% of all your firefighting gear is out of service, then you have to have a workaround. What is your workaround in case there's going to be a fire? Because let me be clear. If you're on a ship and coming out of a shipyard, you're going to have a fire. I guarantee you that some, someone's going yeah. to weld somewhere. Someone's going to do something and you're going to have a fire on board. How do you put it out? And they were not ready. And, 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 and this is the criminal thing. Yeah. Something I, I saw. And I mean, I've seen this discussed. I've seen a few documents. I don't know how accurate it is per se, but it seems fairly legitimate to me is that apparently something that came out during all the testimony was that um, various crew were being instructed by their senior officers to fake um, readiness reports in terms of, you know, when they're signing things off, when it's, you know, like at the end of the day, are the various relevant bulkhead hatches shut? for things like damage control and keeping fires contained. And I mean, as we know, part of the reason the fire spread was because there were cables and ducting and everything through all being tracked tracked through these. So they weren't shut, but the regulations for obvious reasons say they should be shut. And so people were being told, well, you need to just sign off on here and say, yes, they're all shut. Yes, we know they're not, but you know, if we don't sign this off, then there'll be paperwork and bureaucracy troubles. So sign it anyway, presumably on the assumption that nothing bad would ever happen. <laughs> And again, it's which amazing. suggests it has happened before on other ships, and suggests it's something that's going ongoing. In a in a nicest way, the, the the more I look at this, the more I worry the U.S. Navy hasn't learned. And we talked about that officer was the darling of the admirals and etc. In the Royal Navy, not that long ago, there was a captain who was a darling of the admirals, and he used the company car for the wrong thing to do, and he got kicked out of the navy. He was a captain. And he was a captain of Prince of HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth, wasn't he? He was one of the carriers. I remember reading. This yeah, story. it was. It was Queen. I think it was Queen Elizabeth's second captain. He'd been on TV. He was a rising star in the Royal Navy. He used his work car for home stuff. He got kicked out of the navy. He was a darling of the admirals. And you sit there and go, that's going a bit too far in a way because the guy made a mistake over using his car he shouldn't have and yes you are supposed to set an example but you've just wasted 40 years worth of tra 20 years worth of training etc kicking someone out and that's not losing a whole capital ship to a fire which should have been preventable by any number of means in terms of fighting the fire you cannot prevent the fire necessarily starting because fires happen, as we've said. And as said, it could have been started by just a combustible fart. Who knows? There's a one in a bazillion chance it was that. Not to make light of it, but that's just a so people can't accuse us of speculating on the cause of the fire. Because if anyone comes up with that one as an actual speculation, then they really are in trouble. But the thing is, what would be the... It, it, on that scale, if that's what the Royal Navy's doing to a captain who's using the car inappropriately and they kick him out, the Royal Navy would do what? Clap th this guy in irons and stick him in the Tower of London? Oh, I mean, uh, to be to be fair, you know, if from a completely neutral perspective, without without knowing further details, I think I, if, if it was if I was making these rulings, I would be sitting there going, okay, on the one hand. Everything, you know, ultimate responsibility rests with a captain for his ship. Yes. On the other hand, um, 
I would be asking how long had the captain been away from the ship? How long had he been assigned to the ship? Uh, and because, you know, for the immediacy, for what actually happened during the firefighting efforts, if he's physically not at the ship, yeah. it's, it's somewhat harder to blame him directly for the things that went wrong during the actual firefighting. Because if he's physically not there, there's not a lot he can do about it. But, yeah, I, I would want to know more like, you know, had he been like if it was one of these cases, because you said, Sal, it's just come out of it just come out of refit. So, you know had he just like been given command of the ship last week and was still on his way in transit to the ship, in which case, you know, even the command failings aren't necessarily his fault because he hasn't had a chance to evaluate them. Or has he been in command of the ship for weeks, month or months, etc. in which case he is much more responsible. He had been XO of the ship before becoming CO of the ship. So this guy had been on board for a long I found I actually found a story of him <laughs> leading a firefighting drill from years ago. And oh, so right. here he is with a hose on board. And it's like it's like, okay, this guy's been on for a long time. I, I mean a long time. So he he fleeted up from XO to, to CO. His his XO was a surface warfare guy. He was an aviator. So I I mean you, you had the yin and yang there of 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 a deck officer while at the same time you have an aviator. And, and so, I mean, he'd been there for, for forever. I, I mean, this was going to be, you know, he's going to bring this ship out, uh, do its tour, and then probably go to a carrier command is, is what they were looking at for this guy. Yeah, well, and, I mean, he so, was being reconfigured as a lightning carrier, so it's an obvious, right. it's yeah, an yeah, obvious yeah. stepping stone. Right. And, and, you know, which, which again, a lot of attention. It's going to be, you know, showcased in, in a deployment coming up. And, and it just seemed like he again was in a position where and i have this issue too you know because the u.s navy's got this thing about aviators have to command carriers they have to oh, and, and 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 they don't exist you know this and this goes back to like 1930s when when you're bringing aircraft you know online it's different today i, I mean i think a surface warfare officer knows about aircraft he understands the idea that there's range and they have to come back you know i, I think mm -hmm. they got that but, i, I but, do think that is a bit sort of that's kind of limiting your pool of officers to call upon Mind you, it, it depends how te how like technical or, or, or by the letter of the law you want to be, because of course Admiral King was a surface warfare and submarine officer before he was given command of the Lexington, and you know everyone was saying, "No, you have to be an aviator to be in command of a carrier," as as I point out, and Admiral King was just like, "Okay, down I go to Naval Air Station. Teach me how to fly." <laughs> just just about managed to get these qualifications. Like, yes, you can take an aircraft off the ground and bring it back again without completely totaling it. Congratulations, here's your license. Please go away. <laughs> which and made him days, technically an aviator, which meant he could command the ship. And um, these days you have a lot of different things you can have them fly. They could be co-pilots on a helicopter. They could just about be able to go airborne in a glider. You could have them take control of a drone for 20 minutes and say they're an aviator. Well, I suppose it depends how the rules are written, because you know, back in those days qualifying on insert biplane here was probably about the, the you know that was about the performance spec you needed to fly a an early 1920s or late 1920s navy fighter where these days again i don't know what the exact rule itself says but if it says you need to be a navy qualified aviator on navy qualified aircraft it does take just a little bit longer to be in any way shape or form qualified for an fa18 or something like that i, I I just get this, this, you know, it, it just seems to be so polar opposite of what they've done in terms of adjudic adjudicating blame here. I, I mean, here's this E1 kid 
mm-hmm. who for two years, I, I mean, is, is raked over the coals here. And, you know, eventually found innocent of, of arson because there's no evidence. I mean, there, there's not the evidence. I mean, could he have done it? Sure, he could have done it. But, I mean, that's not what the charges found. There wasn't enough evidence to, to prove it. But meanwhile, the, you know, the 06 is allowed to retire, you know, out of this uh, with literally a slap on the wrist. They, they you know, gave an admiral who was out of the Navy at this point, an 09, who was out, you know, uh, a, a slap uh, at the same time for no good reason. And, 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 Technically, he was the one admiral, by the way, who interceded to try to get, you know, yeah, I got to fix this cluster on the pier because this is looking so friggin' bad. They actually gave a slap on the wrist to the admiral who actually tried to take charge and sort things out. And I do hope he carries on bashing them with that because I hope he starts fighting back because that is actually a very, very good admiral. He's yeah. the one per admiral out of that whole thing who I came out with, with more respect for afterwards than I had before. And I had respect for him before because it's some of the stuff I'd read in terms of his writings and his publications and the things he'd done. I actually have the U.S. Code of... Uh, 10 U.S. Code 8162 Aviation Command eligibility in front of me. To be eligible to command an aircraft carrier or an aircraft tender, an officer must be an officer in the line of Navy who is designated as a naval aviator or naval flight officer and who is otherwise qualified. That is the exact wording. Man, drone pilots, anyone? Can I, can I be clear? When I say when I say about the Navy, I can remember doing underway replenishments with aircraft carriers, and it was always the, the one ship you always worried about doing underway replenishments with was an aircraft carrier. Because of the because typically what they would do is they would send up these squadron commanders to to get their qualifications while you're doing underway replenishment. So they'd send up these commanders and here they are up on the bridge wing and they're doing the underway replenishment is and as the underway replenishment vessel. All we did was hold course and speed. We just maintained, you know, whatever course and 13 knots. That's all we did. And these commanders would come up and, and do these underway replenishments. And God, they were awful. They were just terrible. <laughs> it is, you could just tell the fear they had up there and i can remember one time an aircraft carrier getting really close to us i mean really really close and the image will always stay with me is this commander on a bridge wing of an aircraft carrier just just like looking over and just not saying anything and then finally the commanding officer just grabbing him by the shoulder and just yanking him off the bridge wing and you can tell that the captain just took command right there and all of a sudden the carrier starts moving away a little bit but but uh, you know they, they have to learn they're literally thrown into the deep end to command a carrier i mean it's huge it's like there's no intermediary step it's like okay let me give you the biggest vessels in the navy to command this is why you have opvs you send them out to command an opv first this is what the central thing is they reach lieutenant commander and you go, right then, let's test if you can actually command the ship. Yes, before we give you a submarine, or before we give you an air, anything, uh, you start to get squadron command and start to look at you for perhaps a future carrier command, or get anywhere near one of our expensive frigates or destroyers. Here, have an OPV. If you <laughs> bust it, you bust it. But it ain't going to cost us the entire frigating navy. That's why small commands are great. That's why little <laughs> lieutenant commander billets are great. Let them mm. go out there. You know, nobody cares if you bang up a minesweeper. You know, you're good. It doesn't get the invisibility, the attention, and you learn. You make all your mistakes on the small on the small boy before you get to the big boy. Because when you have a problem with the big boy, it, it, everybody sees it now. Yeah. I mean, to, to be fair, I, I don't envy the people who have to command those carriers because that you're commanding a ship which is so large you could have a legitimate separatist movement in the engine room or in the bow. And it would take you time to know about it. 
Okay, the personnel issues are crazy. I mean, I can't imagine that many people on there. And, and you actually have to, have to, to have a police force on board, don't you? You have the NCIS that actually have agents, etc. Well, if they make board. them any bigger, they're going to have to have an internal transit system, a little tramway that's like now stopping at <laughs> frame one seven five. Oh come on, come on. They're, they're still tiny compared to commercial ships. Don't make me get going on commercial ships. How much bigger they are than, than these little? Well, tiny yeah, crew. but they have a tiny crew. They do. Yeah, right. but also, them, also, also to be honest, if you there if are you... two things you can do if you want to really ignore humanity. You can become one of those cowboys who work in the middle of the desert and just on their own for millions of miles. I forget what they're called, but they have a Spanish name. They use. And or you can become a worker on a modern oil tanker where I swear you can honestly go days without seeing other people because you're working in your section. 20, 25 people on a 1,400-foot, uh, you know, 400-meter vessel. You, you can disappear quite a bit. Yeah. But then no no one particularly cares if you're five, ten minutes late on one of those things. It's like, where's Raul? I lost saw him <laughs> heading down towards the bow four days ago. The Morlocks <laughs> might have got him. <laughs> and then maybe that'll get you court-martialed, because, you know, that's the evidence they'll use to uh, prosecute you there. I saw him somewhere. and there. I just, I just... I, I just I just think they were so gasping at straws here. And, 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 you know, when you grasp at straws like that, you do look, as as Alex said, you look terrible. I mean, it's just it's such a bad look, because if you're going to if you're going to court martial this kid, you better have it all in a row so that, you know, you've got the evidence and you're going to make him guilty. I, I just don't understand why you would push through a court martial for something that, you know, you don't have evidence for. Because they were not able ever to find that, you know, image, that picture that, you know, leaving the scene you know, with a lighted match, you know, <laughs> or incendiaries of any kind. It, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fire in a shipyard it, it, or coming out of a shipyard period. It, it's going to happen. And, and, and to make that issue just makes them look so bad. It, it's a terrible visualization. And everything about Von Hamm Richard has been a terrible visualization for the Navy. And, and the, as you said, they don't know the public relations how to fix this at all. I mean, they've tried to put band-aids on this thing and talk about the fact well we used the vessel for damage control later on because it was a great platform for it you know it was a great platform on the morning the fire broke out it didn't go very well you know they, they keep trying to make this better and there's no lipstick they can put on this pig that makes it look better uh, i think i think um i think part part of it with this this whole sort of witch hunt of one person is the the, the problem is it leaves you with Without having that scapegoat, it leaves you with two major problems. One, you still have to try and figure out what caused the fire if it wasn't some random random enlisted guy. And as you say, doing a fire that intense, you may never figure out exactly what it was. You may never even figure out exactly which compartment it was in because there's probably just a gaping void where several compartments were. Um, and you know, people don't like an unsolved mystery. And let, let's face it, if no one knows what caused the fire, then in like the, you know, 2090s internet, there'll be some conspiracy website that says it was like aliens or space lasers or um, the Illuminati or something, because it was an unexplained fire, um, which, you know, the Navy's probably not going to want to have to roll their eyes at for the next century or two. But also, you know, as we've been pointing out, there were all sorts of failings with the way the ship was set up at the time, the damage control requirements, the damage control equipment, the damage control efforts, et cetera, et cetera. And most of that 
you know, the policies that actually set all that in that in train and allowed it to continue. Most of that is stuff that senior officers are responsible for. And senior officers have connections. <laughs> so it's much easier to throw one enlisted guy on, who probably has no connections under the bus and just say, yep, no, it was his fault. Because if it's not his fault, then that means you have to start looking for whose fault it actually was. And that's when things get political. What's really amazing is is every time I've posted anything on this, I will get the the older Navy guys sitting there going, you know, back in my day in the Navy, man, this is all we did. We would train nonstop, you know, fire damage control. And and they just they, they're at a loss to understand what happened. Whereas the newer guys post on it, it's like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, you know, this is this is what happens. We don't train. We don't do what we need to do. There's so much other stuff we need to do. And, you know, I heard from a damage control officer on a sister ship of Bonham Richard. And it and is and as damning as I was in some of my videos I did on this, he came back in and said, man, you have just scratched the surface. He goes, you don't know how bad it is at times. He goes, we just cannot do the training and do what we need to do and 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 do the amount of 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 requirements. Is and and, is and it's it fundamentally like, a lack of personnel. I, I think it's a lack of personnel and time. I, I think there's because so I, I look at the US Navy. Things. And I think they are incredibly wasteful in terms of personnel. We've been over this before. We've talked about how they require about eight people it is to be present for the launching of a boat. You have an automatic boat launching system. It can be monitored by one person. You can call in others if you have problems. But no, they insist that eight be there. And if you have eight people there to be there when really you only need two to watch the boat being launched, that's six people who could be doing other things and who aren't doing those other things because they're with the boat. And you sit there and go, you are lean manning systems the US Navy doesn't have. They believe in having personnel there for damage control, for they believe it's a higher result. I, I understand that. But if you actually implement the lean manning systems, the benefit of them, if you do have a fully a, a larger cruise ship, is you can let those crew do the things they need to do. But you're acting as if you don't have those things there. And you're piling on more paperwork, you're piling on more other expectations. You know, there's a debate going in the UK at the moment because the Royal Navy's trying to suggest that professional military education, etc., development should be done instead of having a eight to twelve week course where they go and do it and get their staff qualification, it should be done as an ongoing process as part of their duty roster. And everyone's going, when are they going to get the frigating time? When he, exactly how many hours do you believe junior officers have in the day? I am sorry, Mr. And the really great fun thing is that the Royal Navy finds very quickly this causes trouble because it gets to the reservists and the reservists in the UK are ha, have the traditional view that all reservists do in that they are part of the wartime Navy. In peacetime, they go and help when they can. But when they're not needed, they're, of course, a civilian. And so the information goes straight out of them. And Britain is just about small enough and the reservists are just about connected enough that some of the reservists are actually members of parliament and actual MPs who actually do proper reserve duty. And <clears throat> one of them might have just recently been running to be leader of the Conservative Party and could have been our current prime minister. And I will not say what my views on that currents would have been, but I might have been very, very happy. But we'll leave that to one side. The thing is, that means the information goes very quickly 
straight to very senior politicians who then look at them and go, excuse me, what exactly are you doing? Is this sensible? Now, the US, I would expect to happen even more so because there is far more of a culture of military officers, uh, especially former military officers, going and former military person going and becoming politicians. In the UK, it's still a sort of exception. In the US, it almost seems to be a rule. You've been a general. You will now become an ambassador and then a senator. <clears throat> it's the, the, you know, the honoris civicus version, of the, the US version of the honoris civicus, you know, the route to leadership. But, I mean... Or is it... No, the, the, to be honest, I think part of the problem which I think a lot of navies are facing. I know the Royal Canadian Navy is facing this problem. The Royal Navy is yes. also facing a, a manning problem um, as well. Is something, again, if you look back in history, we see happening cyclically. I think it comes down to pay. Because, you know, look, look back at some of the, the biggest mutinies in the Royal Navy um, over time, and almost all of them were about paying conditions, because they tended to say, "Okay, you, you, we, this is this is how much you're getting paid," and at the time, the deal might have been pretty good, but then it was written into law that the navy get that a sailor gets paid X, and then that law wouldn't be revised for 50, 60, 80 years, and a century later, what was a really good pay deal in 1680 wasn't such a brilliant salary in 1780 because of inflation and everything else and eventually it gets bad enough that there's a mutiny and everyone's like okay well i guess we raise the salary the salary goes up to you know a little bit above average so everyone's happy again and then no one learns any lessons and it stays that way for another half century and then you have the same problem again and i'm just looking at um you know pay scales and you know, I'm I'm thinking to myself, you know, if if I'm if I put myself in the position of a young man or woman in the US or the UK, and looking at their salaries, so um, in the US, the average, the the real median personal income, as opposed to the average, which is skewed horribly by you know people like. Uh, well, now Steve Jobs, he's dead now, but you know, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. But if so once you are. eliminate those, that the real median personal income, i.e., what you would consider to be an average okay ish salary offer, is about $35,000 to $36,000 a year. But if you're a E3, it's $26,000 a year. So, and that's, you know, that's what, 70%? So, uh, and if you're an E1, like well, like the guy they tried to pin things on, you're on twenty two thousand dollars a year basic pay, my, and obviously minus adjustments, etc. So it, once and then once you work out how many hours a day and how many days a week you're expected to work in the Navy, which is usually a little bit longer than your average nine to five office job, and translate that into an hourly amount, you could literally be earning more per hour flipping burgers in a McDonald's than you would as an E3 in the US Navy, at which point, if you can flip burgers for eight hours and go home, why would you sign up? It, it, That's yes, going to lead to a manning crisis. You're going to then have people who are either signing up because they have no choice, they have nothing else they can sign up for, 
and people who sign up because they actually want to be in the Navy. But anyone who's looking into it from the perspective of, I want a good career and I want decent pay, well, you're going to be in the Navy a long time before you get promoted even to a point where you're making median salary, let alone anything better than that, uh, and which is going to discourage um, a lot of recruitment. And it's the same thing in the UK, because the UK average In the UK, salary... I can add more to that, mm. because we know... We know someone who's very keen on joining the Navy. They've looked at it a lot. She's looked at it a lot. But I've been having the discussion with her recently, and I'm fairly certain mm. that she's going to go reservist rather than regular officer because of the pay cut. Mm. And the point is, she for then she's motivated by wanting to serve, by wanting to be mm. part of the Navy. Well... Okay, that's fine. The Navy gets an excellent reservist, which is good. But the, that then starts to present a problem if even the people who are very committed and very much want to join the Navy are looking at going, financially, I can't afford to. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, if you've uh, reached the point where even the people who really want to join the service can't afford to join you, you have muck something up and it's as i say you look at the when you look at the royal navy um there's a there's a bunch of different statistics for what the uk average salary is but you know if you take the the very approximate midpoint of them um then you know you don't actually break the the you don't break above the uk average salary in the royal navy if you're on the officer track until you're a step three sub lieutenant or sub lieutenant you know, so that's three three pay steps above where you'll start, assuming that once you get to the sub lieutenant rank in the first place. And if you're a, if you go in as a a rating as a standard, you know, enlisted uh, individual, then you your entire pay bracket is below average. Um, you don't break, you don't break above average pay until you reach the final step in your pay in your pay scale as a leading rating so you have to reach step 6 as a leading rating before you even start to break above um your, you know standard pay um like the standard pay you get in a regular office job with some qualifications in the UK and you know, at that point again is it very surprising that you have a man in crisis well it What's going to motivate you to join the U.S. Navy when the one person who gets prosecuted for the entire issue on the Bonham Richard is the mm. most lowest ranking guy? Yeah. And it's, it's like it's and like, the one well, who what? they actually have the flimsiest amount of evidence against. Yes. And everybody else gets what you basically perceive to be a slap on the wrist. You know, you're allowed to retire. You're allowed to keep your 06 benefits. You're allowed to you know keep everything. Mm. And meanwhile, you've gone through two years of a living hell and oh by the way you still have two more years to serve in the navy because you signed a contract and and so now you're stuck in there they're actually there. holding him to the contract yeah and and, and now he's stuck in there and, and it's just like it, it's you know this is not the recruiting poster you want for the US don't navy. take this the wrong way but if he's is he still allowed to apply to bud school because if i was admirals i'd be seriously worried if he qualifies from bud school because he'll have some serious skills <clears throat> and he could that we have all seen the very the various movies okay um, but he doesn't look actually, like Gerard no, Butler some... though, so or, or Liam Neeson, so he should be all right. <laughs> yeah, they should be okay. But it, it's it's a case of I actually hope he does get into Bud School now if he's if he's still keen on it because he probably he deserves it. 
but I, I have a feeling someone will make sure he doesn't because they'll be what they'll decide they that that would really show them up if he then goes on to become a seal. If they were smart, they'd give him his discharge and just let him go and just just let this poor kid go because it, it's just more of a problem. In, in, I think in... the uh, other problem you have, and this is going to sound terrible to pay, but if we consider the qualifications most sailors have, they are mechanically and technolog technologically minded. And the world we're living in rewards those skills and rewards those skill set. And yes, you start out as a relatively on a relatively low paycheck, so you might come from a background where you don't have much formal education, but you'll soon get those qualifications. So the Navy might manage to keep hold of you for your first contract, which is what, four or five years? The real problem for the Navy comes with the number of people who leave after four or five years, because the Royal Navies aren't really structured to lose people after four or five years. The Navies are structured around people serving two to three contracts. At well, least. And I'd argue, too, that the technology, you know, we always like to talk about the cutting edge Navy technology, but in truth, it's not always cutting edge. A lot of the technology is a generation behind. And, and so, you know, the systems you oh, think are... are... You, you, you can say that again. I've just built my own PC and it's got more processing power than probably most of our anti-submarine warfare frigates. Right. And so it's like... Combined? <laughs> Why do I want to work on this technology that's so far behind? You know, when, when you look at like uh, the the collision involving uh, uh, McCain, for example, I, I mean, they're using a technology in the helm control that, again, you know, I give my my fourteen year old a you know a controller for a game. He's got to figure it out in five minutes, you know, and he's back flipping his way through killing you know Nazi armies, you know. But meanwhile, we're using technology that's so outdated that nobody can quite figure out how to use it. And, and this is where this generation is. They're like, why am I going to stay here? Why am I going to stay for poor pay, poor, poor, poor treatment? I'm, I, you know, I'm the one who's going to get blamed for this. I'm the one who's going to get the, 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 the reason be, for everything. You got, and that's his way in the US, let's be honest, part of the reason also is, was healthcare. It's the TRICARE system, isn't it? I think it's called. Yep. And, you know, you've got the healthcare. It was the benefits. You got to travel the world. You got good healthcare. You got all these things. Yeah, the pay could be slightly below average, but it made up for in benefits. And the trouble is now you aren't getting the things which make up for the pay being below average. So now you've just got the below average pay. And that is a problem. In you know, the UK, the Royal Navy can ghost along with it because they can go, well, there's the NHS. So, you know, we're fine. Uh, we well, don't I need mean... to provide that benefit. We don't need to provide that benefit, that benefit, uh, those sort of things, because the state already provides it. And... Other nations have similar issues. But the fact is, you're looking at a scenario. I can't think of a single Navy, other than possibly the Chinese Navy, which is meeting with recruitment targets. And I don't actually, not actually sure if I believe the Chinese Navy figures. Oh, no, they are because definitely they... Meeting their, they're meeting their recruitment targets because, you know, if we they want 500 sailors and 400 volunteer, well, then some of the local police will go out and find 100 extra um, volunteers. <laughs> we, yes, we have done that, this that... before, you know, back in the 17th and 18th century when you have manning issues. I, I, know the the are, I, know, I know the Russians aren't because there's Russians washing up in Alaska right now. So I'm pretty sure the Russians are not meeting. <laughs> well, you see, people. the Russians made the mistake of telling people they were going to do it first yeah, that which was let everyone mistake. run away the beauty of the press gang is the first thing you know about it is when there's a bunch of heavies blocking the door with clubs 
actually, no, the beauty of the, uh, even before you have the press gang, usually you have um, glasses, go, uh, mugs and glasses going out, which have glass bottoms or are glass tankards, because um, you don't want to see the king's shilling in there. If you do see it at the bottom, you do not fish it out. You don't finish your drink, you put it down, you leave it. Because if you take it out and you have taken, therefore you have taken the king's shilling and you now belong to the king. They don't care how they get you the shilling. You just have to take the shilling. I don't think there's any beauty to the press gang at all. I think you guys are being mocking at this time. I, I don't think there's <laughs> any positive nature here at all. I, but as I, uh, us, are it, you accusing me and my colleague Drak Innerfeld of being sarcastic about history and the modern events? I, well, the I, annoying just, thing is these days, the Royal we Navy would never the be crisis and the UK actually has, has relatively low unemployment figures. So we, the government can't even use that excuse. No, I, but I, I do think, I mean, the Navy has, at least our Navy, the U.S. Navy has this tendency to do, even in like the Fat Leonard scandal. I, I mean, no admirals are prosecuted. No admirals are brought up. It's it's mid-range. And actually, officers. let's be honest, the Navy's almost suffered from losing Fat Leonard because he whilst he did take bribes, he did actually get the projects done. Hey, can't be clear. This is the way you do business in the Far East. I don't understand. You know, it, it's only the Navy fails to understand how business is done in some of these areas. And and again, commercially, this is done all the time with with guys like Fat Leonard, whether it's in the Middle East, South, South America, Africa, wherever it is, there's always someone involved in this. The problem is the Navy has this kind of wholesome attitude where you can't do anything. And then it goes. Are the, you telling the me problem, that U.S. Navy is like a cracker company, which goes, we're a family cracker company. We sell our crackers to family. We don't understand if single people buy them. No. But, but I also think they, they okay. go over the edge and over the top in, 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 in what they do. But again, you know, the one admiral doesn't get charged. You know, it's everybody else gets charged. It, and it just shows this level of protectionism that exists in the upper ranks, which is terrible for morale. I, I can't imagine what this does to the lower ranks of a service when you're trying to entice and recruit in a period when there's, there's no reason to go when because you can get a job like Drax said. You know, flipping burgers or working at a coffee shop for a heck of a lot more money than you can in the Navy. Yeah. And you, I mean, to be honest, I, I can I can somewhat relate to that because um, as some of you, some people already know, I worked for Croydon Council before. Well, that was my last official quote unquote day job before doing naval history full time. And, um, you know, the council went bankrupt, which is, you know, it's the, basically it's the equivalent of a state government going bankrupt um in the u.s and the uh, the the ceo and see this is the wonderful thing because i was lower lower ranking enough they didn't think to hit me with a gag order so i can say the ceo who caused it all bailed out with a massive 400 grand golden handshake and and ran away before the the auditors from the government could come in um and they brought they obviously therefore they had to bring in a new ceo but the, the the wonderful, you know, they're like we we're bankrupt. We owe over a billion pounds in debt. It's like, uh, okay, that's that's an impressive amount to get into debt for for a for a, a London borough. But okay, and you know, there's going to be pay freezes, recruitment freezes, staff cuts. You know, you're you're and even if you've got your job, your budget's going to be slashed. So you basically can't do anything. Um, Etc. Etc. So morale plummets because you know this is a problem that's been caused by the higher ups and it's being inflicted on everybody lower down. And then the piece de resistance is, oh yeah, by the way, you know the the people right at the top, the executive directors, the ones who caused all this, 
our brilliant plan for getting out of it is to ask the people who got us into this mess to get us get us out of it again because they're all going to stay and they're all going to come up with a plan to fix it and everyone's like that that doesn't add up and then suddenly there's a mass exodus of people who are just like yeah okay this is dumb I just don't know how you fix this right now with with the the mindset that's going on with the U.S. Navy, especially when you look at just the lineage of problems, you know, from LCS to Zoomwall to the Ford class. You know, you see, just, the thing is, the Zoomwalls were. Can, can we just be honest? The Zoomwalls were not a problem. The Zoomwalls are quite good ships. It's the fact is that someone tried to turn them into a Christmas tree and put all the new stuff on them when they should have been built ready for the new stuff to be added to them later and being built with the stuff that was available now. Then you'd have a good new class of destroyer coming in. You wouldn't have to be keep recycling the frigating Burks and you would have time before actually having to bring up to, to design something to replace everything. Yeah, and this is the problem that Bath Iron Works had. They were told, we're not building Burks anymore. Stop your production line. Cut, kill it. We're just going to be building Zoom walls, 32 of them. And then all of a sudden they're told, nope, we're building just three and start, you know, fire back up the, uh, like, like it's a, an assembly line. You just hit a button and start pumping out Burks. And that's not the way you do it. I am honestly and... surprised the, the this is going to sound strange, not to the executives of Bar Fireworks. They're probably going, how much money can we make it? But you know that every shipyard, they tend to have a sort of foreman who has a different title almost every shipyard I've been to. It seems to be historic title differences. But they tend to have a foreman who's in charge of running the, all the crews that do the actual building. That person, I'm fairly certain, when they were told that, will probably have orbited the Earth a couple of times. Because they will have been responsible for breaking everything down and setting everything up for the Zumults, and now you're telling them they have to reverse that. They would have been crying. Oh, I guarantee you there's some salty main talk when that was Yes. Told. But it's a case of they seem to be able to cut their nose off despite their face. Whenever they are faced with a crisis, they go into knee jerk. We've got to do something. They're acting like politicians when they're supposed to be the ones who take the strategic thought. It's like recently there was uh, there've been articles from several generals say critiquing politicians for not exercising long term strategic judgment. And the thing I find interesting about these particular generals, etc., who are doing the critiquing, is they were the senior advisors to the government at the time. So if the government's not exercising long-term strategic government at judgment, it's their fault because they're the ones who are supposed to explain that to politicians, who the whole point of a democracy is a politician is usually someone who is from a, well, theoretically from a democratic background, but let's be honest, usually are a lawyer. Well, or occasionally use car salesmen. But again, you know, referring back to history, this isn't exactly the first time this has happened. You know, no, it it happens to global hegemonic navies all the time, and no one ever seems to learn the lesson from it. You I mid mean, probably what eighteen eighties, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. I'd say is probably the worst time period for it in the Royal Navy. You know, because they've had a protracted period of peace, everyone believe you know the fact that they've won dominance of the sea has now translated into a belief that they have dominance of the sea by some kind of intrinsic right, and not that they're actually going to have to fight for it at any point, or that any fight that they undertake is not going to be a serious fight. It's just be like, oh yeah, look, look at the silly upstart. We'll, we'll slap them down easily. They're not nowhere near as good as us. And you look at all the problems the Royal Navy had at that point. 
as a result of it. And they, they had that same problem in the early to mid 1700s. And in both cases, what shook them out of it in the 1700s, it was a basically that ended up losing a war. I mean, in 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 some very distant way, you can actually thank Royal Navy corruption for some of the reason why Sal's talking to us from a foreign country and not um, not from the duke dukedom of of Western of Western America. America, yeah, because I mean the the, the, the War of Jenkins' Ear and the American War of Independence, all the conflicts that blew up around that, a lot of that, a lot a, a lot of some of the things that went badly for the Royal Navy at sea were down to a long period of relative peace that had become thoroughly riddled with corruption and sloth and that put everyone on the back foot so in that case it took a war losing the first part of the british empire and a lot of humiliation for them to start pulling things together in the second set case they were fortunate enough to have people like admiral uh fisher and others to pull them out of the lethargy before the first world war kicks off but can you imagine the royal navy of the late 1880s early 1890s trying to fight world war one well it's, um, it's kind of like if you try and like, say we can't go words, fight, world we can't war... fight, go fight the german high seas fleet today it, it, it's very dull gray and the weather's horrible and it'll ruin the paint job <laughs> yeah and let's be honest even the u.s navy if it hadn't been admiral king hmm. love him or hate him without him the u.s navy of world war ii would not have been in the place it was at hmm. every position he was in he got things done and took very little notice of the politicians trying to tell him he needed to moderate his plans. Well, this is, and, I mean, even on even on a, on a smaller you know, scale, you've got things like, you know, the anti-aircraft firepower. You know, by late 1942, the US anti fleet's anti-aircraft firepower is cutting the Japanese apart left, right and centre. But and a lot of people take that as just read that the US was really good at anti-aircraft. It's like, no, actually, you look at the US anti-aircraft work at Coral Sea and Midway, it's nowhere near as good as it was at Guadalcanal. And the only reason it was even as good as it was in early 42 was because Admiral King had spent most of that late 40 and early 41 desperately trying to persuade people that maybe we should actually have some anti-aircraft guns on our ships. Um, as, you know, as questionable as the quad 1.1 inch Chicago piano was, it was at least something. You know, and once you have something, you can improve yeah. it with something. You can build, US, put the US something Navy better gone, onto a place. Yeah. yeah, if the U.S. Navy had gone to war in um, yeah, in nineteen in nineteen thirty nine, the same time as war breaks out in Europe, you basically would have had the fifty cal, the five inch, and not an awful lot in between. To be fair, in nineteen thirty nine, the Royal Navy it would look like it was heavily armed in comparison to pretty mm. much any other navy other than the Dutch in terms of air defence. Well, that's mainly because we just love the pom pom. Yes, <laughs> we, just like, we have eight barrel but, guns. This will solve all there, problems ever. <laughs> yes, but you sit there and you you look at the pom pom and you go, oh, well, you know, that's sort of not as good as the both of us. But if the U.S. Navy had ended up in World War Two in nineteen thirty nine. Would Their only gone. option would have been to mass order the pom pom. Well, to be honest, the the pom pom came very very close in the U.S. Navy competitions in forty one yeah. and forty two. Yeah, it was it was a very close runner up to the forty millimeter Bofors for what should be the medium anti aircraft weapon of the U.S. Navy. Uh, the Bofors had some advantages, of course, which is why it won out. But it, the pom pom wasn't by any means a bad weapon. No, but um, I, I do I do sometimes like like to think that, that the spirit of the Team Fortress 2 engineer, if anyone's else played ever played that game, it kind of 
for some reason emigrated to the UK in the 1930s because one of his most famous lines, I don't know if you've ever played that game, Sal. I haven't. No, one of in the little trailer, Meet the Engineer in Team Fortress 2, he's he's a classic American. But um, one of his fa famous lines is, you know, if you need to solve a problem, use gun. And if that doesn't work, use more gun. <laughs> and that's basically the approach of the pom pom. They're just like, we have the two pounder. But what if it came in quad and octuple barrel variants? And then at some point after the invention of the eight, eight barrel pom pom, he just went back home. And presumably possessed Admiral King, who was always like, "We must put guns everywhere." I, I do think that the the issue you guys are talking about, I think, is really essential for the Navy because the Navy right now is in such a bad position to go argue budgets. You know, when they go up to Congress and they sit there and say, "Listen, we need more money than the Army and the Air Force are getting because the nature of the Pacific is different. We're facing a peer to peer with China." We need more money. But you look at the Navy's track record. It's like, why would I give you money? You know, why would I give you anything more based on it, your track record? Kind of the inverse of what's happening with the French Navy, the Royal Navy and the, the Danish navies at the moment, because they are now, if you look at their governments, they're almost a trusted service to give right. money to. Yes, they've had problems. But they tend to be right in predicting what those problems are going to be. It's like the aircraft carriers in Britain. People often go, oh, but they came in over cost. And the Navy goes, well, we predicted they were. We gave the options to the politicians. They chose the option which would stall them and rack up the cost. And the thing is, you can find the cost estimates. You can find the paper trail. You can find decisions. So you can't blame the Navy for that. So despite the army sometimes going, well, you know, they did that and therefore that's fine for Ajax. You're looking at the Ajax program and going, the Ajax program has got so bad that there are people in Vietnam making jokes about the Ajax program overrun. Somehow it is transmitted around the world and through several languages to manage to make jokes viable about Ajax in Vietnam. They do not know the history of Ajax as a Greek they know him as a very badly run British vehicle program. <laughs> and the reason I know this is because a Vietnamese friend of mine sent me the joke. They're prob probably they're probably clearing a plinth for it in their museum of captured Western military equipment. <laughs> It'll presumably come on a demonstrator mission and then just break down somewhere in Hanoi and they'll just be like, oh, okay, off it goes. <laughs> It's ours now. <laughs> At which point, to be honest, the British army will be like, yes, please take it. <laughs> the fewer of them we have, the fewer of them we have to worry about. Yeah, I don't think you have to worry about anybody stealing uh, the Ajax and making copies of it the way the Americans stole the, the Bofors and, and illegally made copies of that. So I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. So well, should we, know... should we uh, since given the timing, should we move on to uh, something yeah. other than... Bonhomme Richard and it, yeah. the U.S. Navy. This is not an entire bash to the U.S. Navy period, but it is. Well, as I said, I think it's a problem in Western navies generally. They <laughs> yes, it is. They massively underpay their crews and then blame them for everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you need to up the pay. Mm. Um, it's probably not even by much. In the U.K. terms, it's probably about up it by about four grand all, uh, all through the ranks, and you would be amazed by how much you could achieve. Which is a lot once you're talking about 20-odd thousand people. Mm. You're talking about, let's be honest, 20-odd thousand people. You're talking 80 million, which is a lot of money. But 
compared to the costs of running armed forces, etc., which are billions of pounds, and you need them if you want to fight and be able to start deterring conflicts. And that's the, the important thing. People often forget about militaries is that the role doesn't start when the war starts. They're trying to deter conflicts, and they spend a lot more time deterring conflicts than they do fighting them. And for that, you need experience and skill. Because, let's be honest, the last thing you want when you're in a very delicate situation and you're trying to deter a conflict is someone who doesn't know what they're doing. I don't know how much Bonham Richard fire deters anybody. I think that tells you no. bad. That, that's it, I think be, that uh, undermines you completely. I think so, too. I think you could have got around it by just having a... Even if the Navy wants to claim they don't have the fireboats, I'm sure if the Navy lent on the local fire service, they would have a fireboat. Um, I mean, to be honest, the, 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 the one thing I was shocked by, which was something I mentioned at the time when we reviewed the incident just after it happened, was um, you know, look at, look at all the pictures of ships on fire in World War II. There's not exactly a shortage of those but you uh usually when the ship's on fire whether it be franklin bunker hill any number of other u.s navy ships you usually see at least one or two cruisers and destroyers who have popped up alongside and are playing their fire hoses over it to help put it out and and when the ship caught fire um the response of the navy was to look at the other ships that were docked nearby and go we have to tow these ones out of range and I was looking at it going, I'm I'm fairly sure they still have fire pumps. That you could just sense. switch them on and point them that way. It might help. <laughs> Don't get me going. This is again, this is the whole thing with Russell and Fitzgerald up here. I mean, again, you had a fire on board the Bonham Shard and you had no water on the fire. I mean, you're in San Diego Harbor and you don't get water on the fire for an hour and a half. And there's no water on the pier. And there was water on the pier with two destroyers right there with their fire pumps. They could have fired them up right there and charge hoses. But do we have hoses? Have we done the health and safety agreement? Do we have the uh, officers to agree this? Is there an admiral to tell us what to do? <laughs> Sal, is there an admiral? Where is the gold braid? I, I, that is I, how you fight fire. You show it your gold braid. I, I, again, you know, because the fire will, will, will run away from stars. That's that's what happens mm. in the U.S. military, and it just doesn't happen. All right, it's let's a low-ranking fire. I know. <laughs> I, I can't talk about the same one. No, yeah. that, let's move on to logistics. Well, in, in happier yes. news, someone's figured out at sea replenishment for VLS systems. No, they haven't. I, I was going to say, have they really figured it out? No, they? they've got a crane ship, which is a vessel, uh, which is usually a supply ship for oil rigs. In and they are doing some testing alongside, and they're going, "Yeah, we can use a crane to do this." So, going, do you want to do that in any kind of rough sea? It's better than going all the way back to port. It's better, but <laughs> basically what you're doing is you're reinventing the Royal Navy's mobile basing program from prior to World War II, which was the idea was you turn up in a random bay somewhere, take it over, put ACAC and various other things ashore to provide air defense and some Marines to make sure no one comes over land to deal with you, and then have supply ships depot ships sitting in the bay and the ships come in and get resupplied which is fine it's a perfectly sensible idea but you'd better have the forces to do if you're going to do this mobile naval basing you'd better supply it and support it and set it up to do it well i mean yeah. the, the, there's experience doing that they did it with ulithi in the second world war 
And yes. you know, if, if you if you can prove at sea replenishment of VLS, at least in sheltered waters, that's a huge step up from you have to go back to Pearl or Guam. Yes, but especially in a Western Pacific situation where Guam's probably going to be a smoking crater in the event in the event that you're having to reload VLS systems in the Western Pacific, Guam has probably been lowered to sea level. Um but my problem with this, Jack, is didn't we have this? I mean, you're right. I mean, Majuro, Ulithi, Karimareto. Mm. I mean, these were areas that were set up as, as forward bases for replenishment. But the U.S. Navy had this. Even with VLS, we had this with the destroyer tenders. This is the point of mm -hmm. a tender. You bring a tender in, you come alongside, you got the big cranes, you can load a, mm. load VLS back on board it and everything. I, I mean, They're again, reinventing the wheel. Well, and they're and trying that... to claim it's not a wheel. They're trying to claim it's something else. They're trying to claim they can do it at sea. So this means they're not developing the mobile naval base because what they're doing is developing the things which would actually sensibly be used as part of mobile naval base. They're claiming they're something else, and then they'll probably end up having to use them as a mobile naval base, but won't have all the stuff they need to actually defend it. But I, I mean, to me, underway replenishment of VLS at sea means you're sailing at 13 knots in the open ocean. Mm, and you're doing this. So that's you. not what they're doing. That's, no. that's that's not what they're doing. They're, yeah. they're in some protected anchorage using a modified OSV with a big ass crane on it. And, and which, by the way, can't carry that many cells anyway. So you got to have a, a, another ship bringing it in because this is just the intermediary right here doing mm -hmm. it. And, and then you're loading it on board. And like I said, this is something we've had. I mean, I mean we, they could load VLS. We knew they could do VLS at an anchorage. But the problem here is they kind of lost that with the destroyer tenders. And again, I, I don't know why the U.S. Navy got into this mindset that we don't need auxiliaries. We can just get rid of these things and, and we'll operate from bases and, and that's it. We will not have the need for this. When you look at 1990, I remember when I was out in the Persian Gulf in that conflict, we had tenders everywhere because we needed to be able to replenish. We needed to be able to do repairs forward base we didn't have the shoreside facilities set up but once you get once they set up the shoreside facilities they realized that ah, we don't need this we can get rid of this and now it's it's coming back to the bite them mm. well, it's redundancy in the system mm. and they, this is the problem we're talking about they it, everything's always marketed as being the best you know if we consider the zombots the problem with the zombots wasn't the zombot ship it wasn't the ship. The hull's fine. The engines are fine. The power generation is fine. It was the fact that old lasers weren't ready in time. Rail guns weren't ready in time. This wasn't ready in time. And you sit there and go, well, actually, those would never have been ready in time. What you said was, this is being a ship which is being built to be upgraded to have, so it can take these facilities in the future and with these upgrade rooms. But currently, what we're fitting it with is a very, very extended range five inch or six inch gun. Lovely. That's a useful extra thing. Uh, it's got lots of VLS cells, and that's it. And it's got the capacity to have a railgun. It's got the capacity to have this. It's got the capacity to have that later fitted later in life. And that would have been sensible. But it seems that you can't sell such a ship now. You can't sell a ship as we're building it, so it's going to be fully armed with all the stuff we have available, but it's also able to take the next generation beyond that. You either have the British, where it's fitted for but not with, which is silly, or you have, it has to be all singing or dancing for the Americans when it comes into service, and then when it's not, it's a disappointment, it's a failure, we have to get rid of it, we have to cut it. That, neither of those are sensible approaches. On, but on, on the plus side, you know, 
now that they've remembered they can do this, maybe it means now they can make some destroyer tenders that are specifically built to service the fleet. Because I suppose the, the one thing with, with the older destroyer tenders is they would have been built in a period where you had multiple, you, know, you would have had, well, you would have had early Burks, Spruances, um, Ticonderogas, etc., etc. So any destroyer tender you built would have to be able to service technically any dash, all of them. So it's going to have a general purpose type of fit. Whereas these days, let's face it, the pretty much almost any surface warfare combatant you're going to be reloading VLS cells on is going to be a Burke of some flavor. Um, and maybe later down the line constellations. Um, at which point, you know, if they've remembered that maybe they can do this, then maybe they can go forward with building a new class of destroyer tenders that are specifically set up to really efficiently reload these two classes of ship. I would love that idea to happen. I also know the US Navy is not going to do that because they're not going to spend the money on a destroyer tender. I think that's why you see them using these OSVs. They're looking for a cheap solution, something they can do on the fly that doesn't cost them a lot of money, whereas a, a tender would be the fantastic thing. The problem was they've tried to build a tender not too long ago, and I think they came in at about a billion dollars a tender. And it's, it, it, there, there's no well, way. Oh, can I just well, ask what, about this tender? spending what, it on? Was it gold-plated? Did it have, I don't know, aromatherapy pools for canines as well as for the humans? Because, very simple, is they came up with this idea of what was called the CHAMP program, which is this common hull that was going to be used for sea lift, for auxiliaries, for everything. And it was going to be a common idea. And what the Navy has missed out on is very simple. If you look at the logistics force that was built in World War II, it was basically culled from the commercial fleet. We took commercial hulls and we converted them and we got 80% of what we wanted out of this commercial hull. Now what they want to do is build a purpose-built hull and and that costs you a lot of money and it's just a terrible way of going about because you build these purpose-built auxiliary vessels that are that are you know you know one-offs that they're going to be built a couple of them and that's it and they're going to have no other purpose than that and which is fine the navy did that with some destroyer tenders and subtenders after the end of world war ii when they had a shipbuilding capacity they can do that but now they don't and, you know, instead of looking at, I don't know, a commercial container ship, how do we modify this into a tender, which is probably what they should be looking at, you know, take that hull design, it's big, huge, voluminous, we can put some decks in there, we can put in some cells, so that we're pulling VLS cells out and putting them into new vessels in, or into reloads. That's what they should be looking at. And instead, again, they're trying to do this all on the cheap. And if you do it on the cheap, it's, it's going to turn out as an ad hoc basis, and it's just not going to work very well, in my opinion. It's not even doing it on the cheap because let's put it this way. I'm thinking about Britain at the moment, and we do have our a very interesting program going and where it's going to be built and who's going to be building it, etc., for our solid support ships. And me and Drak and Jamie have already taken the out of their various designs because, frankly, they are interesting. But leaving that to one side. That hull which they're building, all the hull options of various commercial hulls already worked out. They are adapting. You don't have to... You, you, if you want to build a new build ship, you can just take the design and use it. And let's be honest, you're allied with this country called South Korea. 
which does a very nice line in turning out fairly decent tanker designs and fairly efficient freighter designs. Now, I know there are various acts of US law, but is it as you've done this with the constellations, couldn't you just take a design which I don't know, someone else has already modified and built to and just go, yep, let's use that as the base point. Save your money. Navy's looking at Navy's looking at this like next generation logistics ship, which is supposed to be this smaller version of an oiler, which I would argue is exactly what the tides are in the RFA. It's like, you know, why are we reinventing the wheel here? This is not hard. Get, you know, license the the hull under the from the South Koreans. It's perfect. It's good size. You know, and there's a lot you can do with it. And and you can go ahead. The tides and... are blooming good ships as well. Yeah. It, it, it's perfect. And the perfect Dutch size. have them. Sort of all sorts of navies now have variations on the tides. It's almost because they're even the French are looking at a variation on it because of the issues they're having with their current program. It, it's, you know, auxiliaries and, and commercial vessels follow a similar line. It's like you don't have to reinvent. I mean, look at the ships of the 30s and 40s. They all look the same. I mean, they're basically, you know, a center house, you know, with a couple of holes forward of of uh, and after the of the house i mean there were not you know there were specifics in the engine plants that were a little different and and the layouts you know in the fuel source coal versus oil but it was, they're all basically the same design whether it was japanese german american british didn't matter they were basically all the same and and you go ahead and you produce it the, the problem is the navy has this idea at least the u.s navy has this idea that everything has to be designed and created within the confines of the, you know, it has to be mil spec is the, the term they love to use military specifications, which you don't need for a tender. I, I mean, you know, if your tender is taking fire, you have other problems, you know, you don't quite have to be up to, to, to the full damage control of, of a Burke class destroyer or a constellation class frigate. And so you just need to get the platform to supply you. That's what you need. And, and the problem they've had is, is there's not a commercial base for them to tap into. And so instead, they have to come up with these brand new designs. And that's why you get a $1.2 billion auxiliary vessel. And you sit there and look at them and go, why? You know, I, I, there are, is this a, actually, let's put it this way. Is that ship and its cost? A factor of the fact of the pre-Constellation world, where you were relying on the LCS. So your choice was either a Burke or an LCS. Now you have the Constellations, you can go, well, we could put a, a Constellation with our supply group, so that will add them a bit of protection. So perhaps we don't need to make them so gold-plated, because the other option was to give them an LCS, and let's be honest, that wasn't any protection. That was just the case of we've got aluminium foil running around us. Isn't that nice? It does pretty donuts. Um, I'm sorry to be so rude about the LCS, but I this is the thing. I will defend the Zumwalt program because the Zumwalt as a ship, I can stand behind and go, actually, it's a good ship. It's the program and the idea of the Christmas tree that Rumpstolt added on top of it that made the problem. It was a sensible design path to go down. The LCS program is a case of you, 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 you didn't put on anodes. You, you, you didn't put on the sacrificial anodes. What? Why? Why? Which is quite funny, considering that um, when I was at the HNSA conference last month, um, there was quite a lot of discussion about cathodic protection for museum ships and how it keeps the hulls going. And it's like, you know, this isn't a revelation. This isn't a secret. You know. 
museum oh. ships are doing it. You know, people figured this out back when they tried to cop a hull and iron ship and watch the whole thing dissolve in about two months. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah. Why quite why that was a mystery is a uh, is another matter entirely. Commercial vessels have them. I mean, seriously. I mean, everyone has you know a piece of zinc on their boat, you know, on their outboard motor, so it doesn't rust. I, I mean, this is again, it, it's it's it is trying to explain to a military people what's standard in commercial sometimes, and and again, it's trying to jam you know one hundred twenty percent of a platform into a, a you know a one hundred percent platform, and what you wind up with is something that doesn't work across the board and costs you a fortune. And it is, it's Zumwalt, it's Ford. Let's put every brand new friggin' contraption we got onto Ford instead of phasing it in. Or I don't know, you know, when we bring the Nimitzes back out of their, their refueling, let's try, I don't know, let's try an electric elevator. Let's see how that works. Let's, let's try an ECAS. Let's see how that works instead of trying to put everything brand new on the newest vessel and see how it works. I, I mean, if I hear one more time about Ford getting ready to deploy after five years, in the success story that this but is. But this is what happens when you turn your new project into a Christmas tree instead of studying, testing some out. Let's be honest. Let's talk about the Type 26 program. Okay. There are, this is one of the reasons why the Royal Navy gets trusted with the funding. The Type 23s have already, as part of their upgrade, have received a new radar, which is going into Type 26, have received the C Scepter surface to air, CAM surface to air missiles system and all sorts of things have already been tested out on the Type 23s, which are being refitted and going to last in service longer alongside the Type 26s until the later ones replace them. And that's not exactly a new thing. That's not exactly a new idea to do that, but the Royal Navy's done it. And I would argue and contest has implemented it rather well. Why didn't the U.S. Navy look at their counterparts and go, hang on, that's what the smaller navies are doing. Perhaps it's sensible. Because the U.S. Navy is terrible in its history, and they think you go from Pensacola and Salt Lake City to the Oregon City. you know, And you don't. There, there's, there's steps in between. There's a whole series of treaty cruisers and steps you know you got i know i've north... done a whole video series i know on them and i so know you have. i know you have and that's my point is you got to go through the northamptons you got to go through the portlands you got to go through the wichita you got to go through them all to get to where you're at the end you just don't all of a sudden leap and sit there and say okay this was a great experiment portland uh, i mean uh, pensacola salt lake city but now we're gonna go oregon city and this is where we're and gonna it's, get you know honestly it's the, the i've re-recorded for the fourth time and that's the version which is going out the Abruzzi class, which are, of course, the Regia Marinas, the final version of the Condottori. And people will always tell how, say, how the Condottori are built around speed and that makes them very fragile and glass cannons, all this. And then you get to the Abruzzi's, and those two ships are not glass cannons. But what they do, they learned by that point, okay, let's drop the speed down to 34 knots from 37 knots and use all that extra tonnage, plus let's make them a little bit overweight. Uh, 1,350 uh, 1, tons overweight uh, to turn them into some very interesting light cruisers, which I would argue are some of the best light cruisers in service in World War II. And that's the Regia Marina. And the thing is, yes, the Condottori's are terrible, are, are really glass cannons. I'm really not a fan of them. And then it's the Abruzzi's, and suddenly it's a case of, oh, those are quite good. And the point is they'd learnt as they'd gone along. 
the thing is, we don't seem to have the capacity for learning. We seem to have lost it. We either get it right, in which case we crow about how amazing we are, or we don't get it right, in which case we try and blame everyone else and dis cut it off and forget about it. Don't learn from it. Well, I think the group that needs to hear it has got their, you know, they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to understand that you can't get to the very end state without going through these steps. I mean, the Burks are a classic example of that. They're, you know, they're not one class of destroyer. They're a series, you know, they call them flights, but they're not. They're basically different levels of them as they go three or four, depending on how you want to count them, where they're at. It's the same thing with the interwar destroyers for both the British and the Americans. I, I mean, you, you, again, you go, how do you go to the flush deck you know, destroyer at the end of World War One, and you wind up with the Sumners and the Gearings. You know, it's, it's it's a progression. You know, figure out what works. You know, this worked. No, this didn't work. You know, this this, you know, the, the these twin mount five inches. Eh, they're a bit heavy. They're not working out the way the way we thought they were going to work out. And so you have to have that progression. But again, the Navy doesn't want. It's almost like the the uh, the the child at Christmas time. They can't wait to unwrap the present. They just can't. You know, they got to get into it, and and they want the end result right away. They don't. It, it is it is the steps to get there that they're not doing. And I get that's part of their rush to blame, you know, uh, in some ways, we got to have someone to blame, got to have a, got to have someone to blame for the problem here. And, and that, that's the issue I think with the U S Navy today and um, many navies, not just the U S. Mm. Yeah. This is, please note, we're not just, but we're using the U S Navy as the shorthand. I don't know, but we are talking about all the other navies as well. And we did promise other subjects to be looked at. So we will make sure we do look at them quickly, at least. And, Before we starve you know, to death. Yes, before we get uh, before we go off to get food, um, so we've talked about the whole lovely, lovely thing of the uh, the VL uh, the VLS reloading, which is sort of fun. Uh, we have supply chain issues going on. Unsurprisingly, we do have supply chain issues. There are some very interesting supply chain issues going on in the world, but mostly what I'm looking at and what I keep looking at in terms of Ukraine at the moment of things going on is people keep being surprised about logistics mattering. How did this happen? When did it become a surprise that logistics could dictate a war? And just because you can have X number of million people in service on paper, does it mean you can deploy them all? I am continually at a loss. I mean, this is Trent's area more than anything else, but I'm continually at a loss for how people don't realize that this becomes a slog and it becomes a war of attrition. And, you know, the war is not going to be over by Christmas. It never is. Uh, they never tell you what Christmas it's going to be. It's going to keep trucking. And, and there are people who are honestly doing the same sum that people did before the Battle of Tsushima. They're adding up the number of Russian guns and going, Russia will win this. And I'm sitting there going, so far they've deployed more people at every step of the way, and so far they're not winning it. I and mean, the people coming in are less well-trained than the people were at the beginning. I mean, to be fair, a lot of this comes down to the whole, you know, fiction has to make sense, reality doesn't. Because, let's face it, you know... It, I mean, even you look back at the build prompts that we did back at the, you know, when back at the beginning when this worked, when when all of this kicked off, 
the single fundamental mistake, if you like, that we made was applying what I call the reasonable person standard. Uh, you assume generally that there is a certain minimum level of competence involved in both sides in a war. If you know that one side is really, really, really competent and really good and has a bunch of advantages, you stack that in their favor. But generally, you don't go in with the assumption that the other side is staffed by people who were dropped on the head to, at birth. Um, you Not because it's a, it's a very dangerous totally. assumption to make because you 99% of the time when people make those kind of assumptions it goes horribly badly for everybody well, i mean witness well, 90, late 1941 and most of 1942 in the western pacific when everyone assumed that the japanese you know were completely awful and couldn't you know you know there's all sorts of things written about the japanese pre-war and it turns out that cost everybody an awful lot but then you know it, if you looked at the balance of forces, um, you know, in March this year, and you applied a reasonable person standard to both sides, the Russians should have won. They should. This this war should have been over three months ago. Well, let's be honest. Um, it's the rule of sixes again. It's a, it was either going to be over in sixty minutes, six hours, <laughs> six days, six weeks, six months, or six years. And I'm looking at it now and thinking it's going to be six years, and I don't think it's good for Russia if it does drag on for six years. Well, it's the... Because it, it, I don't see things getting any better for them over that six years. Because reality doesn't have to make sense, and I mean, I have seen uh, some videos, there were some indications beforehand that, you know, perhaps things weren't as quite as everybody expected them to be in the Russian military, but let's face it, there were, yes, there were indications, and yes, people in hindsight should have read and seen them. But an awful lot of people didn't. Oh. You know, everyone up to and including various military analysts in in the in the first world militaries were thinking this was going to go very very differently. Um, I didn't think it was going to be quick, but I did think the Russians would have enough might that if they really did deploy it, they could win. Because yeah. at, if you have enough might and you don't care about casualties, the odds are surely in your favor. Although although the flip side to that is yeah. It shows how important both sides of things are. You have to have the logistics to supply the people, but then you, the people also have to, you know, actually want to be there and actually want to fight. Mm. Um, and if you don't have one or the other, everything collapses. And it turns out in this case, the Russians didn't have either, <laughs> which is extra fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, it's gotten to the point now where. You know, as cynical as I usually am, I mean, I'm now gone even beyond that to the cynicism, especially in naval matters of, you know, when people, when the, they're deploying, was it the Gorshkovs, their, their new frigates, I'm looking at them going, yeah, they're probably a harder target target than Moskva, despite the fact that theoretically they carry fewer missiles and guns. But I'm now applying that principle purely on the basis of these things were only launched five years ago. In theory, the systems can't have broken down too badly in that time. <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm now theory. going and assuming they've done no maintenance and it's just like basically how long has it been since they unwrapped the thing you're also assuming they worked when they were launched when you're so having the well this is true i mean there, 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 there's 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 a Let, tiny, tiny shot of the reasonable person standard in assuming the things worked on launch which the russians lost more vehicles to their tires giving out than they did to the anti-tank missiles Although I, I'm still semi-convinced that some of those tires giving out may have been some very, very crafty work by by uh, people, by by Ukrainians. Because let's face it, you know, if you 
You know, when the tires are giving out on the Russian side of the border, I'm not sure if that's the Ukrainians can well, claim. They, yeah, there's that. But yeah. I mean, you've also got, as, I, as I've said in previous discussion, you know, if you're, uh, I don't know, Boris the Ukrainian, um, you know, you may have a rifle, probably a, a, a sniper rifle or at least a rifle with some distance, not some you know, pesky little. 5.45 thing you have to get within about 30 yards to actually hit anything with but assume you've got a decent range rifle you know your friend up the road might well have an anti-tank missile launcher of some description but you want to save that for the tanks so when all the logistics vehicles come down it's like well i have a i have a gun that fires a bullet a, a six-wheel truck is a big target you know if i hit 90 percent of this thing it's not going to do anything I'm probably fairly sure that there's at least a modicum of protection on the driver's cabin. So shooting the driver, as nice as it sounds, may not work. But, you know, you can't put bulletproof glass around the tires. So, yeah, and there's six of them and they're pretty big. And they're pretty static relative, especially if you're looking vaguely down the road. It's like, OK, put a single round into a tire and that vehicle's coming to a halt fairly soon <laughs> and by the time you know a three and a half five six nine ton um logistics vehicle has come to a halt and completely mangled and ripped its tire off there's going to be so much damage to that rubber no one's going to see the little bullet entry that caused it in the first place mm. True. and multiply that by like Boris Spania and his 50, 15,000 friends <laughs> all hiding in the woods. It's like, oh, we're, we're suffering a mysteriously high rate of tyre failure all of a sudden. Well, of course, that is exactly what happened to the Soviets when they invaded Finland. They had that fun. And when they invaded Poland in the 1920s. So... <sighs> this, is the pro this is the thing you've got going on. We have this... Because of the experience of the West in the last few years, there is almost a, a predisposition that the larger, more powerful nation will always win a war because they've always won a war in the recent years because they're so overwhelmingly powerful. But people forget that for all their many, many problems, and we have spent a lot of today discussing many of the Western military problems, many of their problems, they are quite good at doing certain things fairly correct well. Logistics, they they are tend to be quite good at doing and running logistics. They're not always brilliant at it. It doesn't always go to plan, but about 80% of it will go to plan. And that does help with actually fighting a war. Broadly speaking. I think the issue with Russia right now, I mean, you start talking about logistics and you start talking about how they're working their logistics. I think the other element here that needs to be talked about is how Russia's energy policy is affecting everything underlying this, the logistics that su basically supports Europe in hmm. natural gas, oil and everything. I think that's the other element that Russia is is hoping for the long term to start cutting the aid coming to Ukraine. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting winter in Europe for a variety of reasons. We've stocked it's... up, so we should be okay. It's going to not be 100% easy, but we should be okay. And it's going to sound strange, 
whilst there are currently quite a lot of voices being very fun on going, well, what we should be doing is we should be investing in this resource and that resource and all these things which will take months, years to come online. There are a fairly large number of pragmatic people, and I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason for the OPEC decision is because Europe's been putting pressure on OPEC, OPEC to increase production to cover for it. And that I know you. I know U.S. isn't the U.S. isn't happy with that decision, but for Europe, that was a very sensible decision. No, and I think it's another dimension of of the conflict that's that's being waged. And and again, I think it's it's part of the, the Russians always assumed that they would have that leverage over Europe in that that energy, and that would be able to curtail support for Ukraine in the war. They can't interdict the logistics, obviously, the, the traditional way. You can't sit there and blow up rail lines coming from Poland into Ukraine or Romania into Ukraine. But maybe we can cut it off by fuel, by by natural gas, you know, and, and whatever happened with Nord Stream. You know, this mm. is what we're going to do. And again, it, it's another element of this conflict that I think a lot of us, you know, we thought about was going to happen, but not a lot of people now are shocked and surprised to see that this energy policy is another element in the logistics of it. Again, it goes Which back to the I whole... again found strange because mm. it's not as if Putin hasn't done it before. No, and, mm. and it's one that he's used time and time again. He used it during Georgia. He's used it mm. all the time as leverage. Uh, it's and worked he, for and him. It, and it's, well, I mean, it's something I've I've ranted about a few times in, in a few previous build prompts, including I think the last one, where, <laughs> as you say, like it was it's such an obvious move. It was so obvious that it was going to happen that, you know, you'd have to it comes back to, you know, that old joke. You'd have to be a politician or an idiot to not see it coming. But I repeat myself um, and it's just like you know, it was so obvious that this was going to happen. And that 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 was the big lever that the Russians were hoping on. And somehow none of our politicians saw it coming and now are crying about it. I don't think the only the, the the only ones I think the only ones who aren't crying about it at the moment are, are over your side of the pond, Sal, because there's a bunch of uh, U.S. LNG sellers just rubbing their hands, going, "Yes, you you didn't want to buy our hyper expensive LNG, but now you have no choice." Even the Chinese are selling LNG that they had bought. I mean, so mm. I mean, everyone's making money off this. So I, again, it, it's it, it's 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 the multidimensional aspect of this. Again, we we tend to look at the battlefield. We tend to look at what's happening d directly, but there's so many indirect elements. Everything from the grain deal going on in the Black Sea right now to energy transportation coming out of Russia. I, I, I again, I, I think we have to look at the logistics, not just the battlefield, but the logistics globally, and what's being done here and how it's being supplied because Russia is doing a lot to earn itself a lot of goodwill with India, China, a few other countries around the world where they're providing a lot of low cost oil and, and fuel right now for mm. them. The G7 is trying this element to try to cap Russian oil, which I think is going to fail miserably because I think the Russians are going to find a way around it. Well, I mean, apart from anything as, as um, I can't remember who pointed out to me, but someone pointed out to me, you know, if you live in the Western media bubble, you get this impression that Russia is being sanctioned by the world. It's like, nope. no, it's being sanctioned by the Western world. India and China aren't sanctioning Russia. Um, India and China will, are still doing business with Russia. OK, granted, they're doing business with Russia a little bit covertly under the table because they don't want to enter a massive political furor with the West. 
But and um, I think even they are starting to um, worry about what might be the knock-on impacts. I don't. I don't. To be honest, I don't think they care. China doesn't. China does not care. No, um, I don't think they the care. West thinks. And they they know well. They know that China's uh, not going to. They, they, China knows that we're not going to sanction them. Or if we do sanction them, it's going to be very symbolic. It's not actually going to affect their economy in any way, shape, or form. Because, you know. Look at the disruption that we're facing in the UK, let alone the rest of Europe, because of the sanctions we put on Russia. And Russia's only leverage over us was gas and oil. And the only leverage of that was that it was relatively cheap gas and oil that can actually be bought elsewhere, albeit for somewhat inflated prices. Now look at how much of our economy relies on China. Do you seriously think that just because China buys Russian oil and gas that we're going to sanction them in any meaningful no, way? No, I, I don't the think Chinese that. The Chinese know that, think, so they don't uh, care. They'll just they'll just do whatever. And as I said, I think as buying said, oil and gas, they certainly will do. I think mm -hmm. probably getting more involved, which mm -hmm. I think Putin was actually hoping at certain points they might, because they needed. He, he That's what North Korea is for. North Korea is already sanctioned a sanctioned to high heaven there's nothing more we can sanction in north korea and i think china mm. loves the idea of having more redundancy in their energy capacity you know yeah. they they you know i'll put a second pipeline into russia mm. for gas i won't get all my gas from russia but i always have that option should i need it because russia i mean china's always thinking about yeah. you know what's 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 the secondary what's the tertiary you know how can i you know, if this if this avenue closes to me, what's my other aspect? Mm. They're, they're they're paranoid about that. Yeah. That's the whole silken you know and, road initiative. Yeah. And the and the big the big thing, which the big worry, putting it on a bigger geostrategic perspective, which is something we've mentioned before, is that you know how long before Russia gets desperate enough economically that China turns around and goes, well you have these blueprints for this uh, Su-57 and this T-14, and we understand you can't build many of them and you can't really make them work that well because, you know, you can't build an engine. To, but, you know, we can build engines and we can build things in large numbers and we'd really like those blueprints. So, you know, um, how about um, how about you pay us in those? And, you yeah, know, Russia's, if they're their only remaining major trading partner, they may not have a choice. Yeah. So Russia may not be the problem, but uh, when whatever they named the is it Fujian, the new Type 003 carrier, when its successor, the whatever they took all the Type 004, when that deploys with an air wing full of Su-57s and <laughs> the Chinese army starts massing across the Taiwan Straits with fleets of actually working T-14s, yeah, I mean, maybe I get a bit concerned at that point. Interested in how much China is getting some insight from the Russians on the battlefield performance of a lot of their their equipment. That's mm. a, you know how many of those Chinese uh, uh, military attaches are there you know across the border watching this and getting that kind of report. That'd be a really mm. interesting uh, uh, aspect to see. Yeah, much like we're getting from the Ukrainians. Yeah, everyone mm. everyone's learning something. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we hope they learn we, the right we, things. We probably have talked for a fair bit of time. We have. <laughs> Thank the you sun has come up in now. America. <laughs> the sun is yeah. up in America. Take up. care. Thank you very Have much, some Sal. Food, and thank you very much for helping us, Sal. Thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Good talk to you. Thank See you. Ya. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>